Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Reno, Nevada. Today's case is a lot more close to home than most. It's actually brought to us by a listener named Nancy, and the victim we're going to talk about in today's episode is her mother, Diana. With that, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Diana Engstrom was one of those people who knew how to do life right. She sought happiness wherever she went and in a pay-it-forward kind of way. She was someone who could figure out how to find joy in any situation, and she wanted that for everyone else too. She was a drop-everything-for-you kind of person, and especially when it came to her daughter Nancy. After Nancy was born, her father didn't stick around long, but Diana could have written the book on how to be a single mother. The way she managed to be all the parent Nancy needed made it feel like there wasn't much of an absence in her life. When Nancy was 10, her mother met a man named James, and he was everything she and Diana never knew they were missing. He and Diana got married, and he loved Nancy as if she were his own daughter. For that reason, we're going to refer to James as Nancy's father because that's exactly what he is to her. Nancy said that her mom and dad's relationship was like a cliche romance novel. They had regularly scheduled date nights twice a month, held hands at the grocery store, and they were so cute that as a teenager, Nancy thought it was gross, but as an adult, it's all she's ever wanted. Outside of Diana's devotion to her daughter and husband, she was a massive Rick Springfield fan, the guy who sang Jesse's Girl. She loved him so much that Nancy became a huge fan of him as well, and the two went to at least 50 of his concerts together. Nancy even got to go on stage with him once when she was little, and Diana wasted no time snapping a picture of her up there with him wearing this cute little dress with blue flowers on it, and she took it to every future concert she went to, hoping she could get Rick to sign it, and one day, it happened. That signed photo became one of their family's most valuable memories. As Nancy got older, her mom didn't become any less of a mom. Their mother-daughter relationship only strengthened when Nancy became an adult. They did family game nights once a week, played trivia together, went to shows, and watched movies regularly. Diana was the mom everyone in the world deserves, and Nancy and her cousin David got to have that. Diana wanted a ton of kids, so when David and Nancy became like brother and sister, Diana raised him as if they were. Though his parents loved him and were around, he took to the family like Diana and James had created him, and Diana was more than happy to have another kid in the house. Diana, James, Nancy, and David were born and raised in the Bay Area of California. As an adult, Nancy wound up getting married, and in 2015, she and her then-wife moved to Reno, Nevada for her wife's job. 
Unfortunately, their relationship didn't work out, and at that point, Nancy was stuck in Reno, heartbroken and without her solid family support system that had been such a huge part of her life. If you thought that there was no way in hell that her family was going to let her live her life out there alone, you would be correct. David moved in with Nancy immediately to help her get through the heartache and stay on top of bills. Diana and James started packing up everything they had so they could also move down there. They'd been planning on making the move anyway, the divorce just sped up the process. Diana was ready to be there for her daughter, but her heart did hurt a little knowing that she'd be leaving her own mother behind, and she was buried in California. Moving to Reno felt like she was leaving her mother behind, and with that, she made it known to Nancy, James, and David that if anything ever happened to her, if she died first, she wanted to be cremated so that they could go anywhere in the world and have her with them. None of them ever thought it would happen so soon. By the end of 2018, Diana and James packed up everything they owned and started heading towards Reno. They had picked out one of the first apartments they'd found. It was an eight-unit apartment off of Broadway Boulevard. It was nothing fancy, just a one-bedroom placeholder until the four of them could find a house to move into together. David had no qualms about sleeping on an air mattress on the floor in the meantime, and it was kind of perfect because David's parents, Diana's sister and brother-in-law, lived in the same complex right across the hall on the second floor. The search for the perfect house with enough bedrooms and within their budget took longer than they'd planned, but it didn't matter. Any house or apartment was a home with Diana in it, and her first order of business was decorating it. Nancy said that when her mom got to Nevada, she refused to even unload the car before she went to TJ Maxx to get some decor. This was a new chapter in their lives, which meant that she didn't want to just take what she used to have and put it into their new apartment. She wanted it to feel fresh. Diana got a couple of vases and one of those multi-photo picture frames that said something along the lines of family is everything, and then sent some photos of the four of them to a printer so she could fill it up. While they were waiting, Nancy asked her if she wanted to to go to the apartment and unload everything, but Diana was adamant that the apartment feel like a home the second they walked in. With that, they picked up the photos, went to the apartment, and hung it up. They also put up their two most adored items, that signed Rick Springfield photo and James's beloved autographed Kobe Bryant jersey. With the apartment all set up, the family was officially back together and everything went back to how it used to be. Diana got a job in senior care, caring for patients with Alzheimer's, something she was really passionate about after taking care of her grandmother. In 2020, when COVID hit, she had to leave due to being high risk, but that didn't stop her from waking up early every morning and helping everyone else with everything they needed. Her sister Lisa would call her every morning at 5.30 a.m. and Diana would start getting ready. She'd make breakfast for James and David before they headed off to work and made sure to pack them a lunch to take with them. When Nancy had to work, Diana would have her bring her dogs, Bugga and Roxy, over. Bugga is actually the brother of Nancy's dogs, Athena and Callie. On Sunday, July 19th, 2020, Nancy worked some extra hours on the weekend to try and save up for the family home they were looking for, and Diana took the dogs. When Nancy was done, she came back to the apartment and her mom asked if she wanted to stay for dinner. That was a hard yes, so Diana made spaghetti and one of her famously elaborate salads, and when they were done eating, they sat and watched reruns of Law & Order SVU until dark, something I think all of us can identify with. 
Around 8 or 9 p.m., Nancy told her mom that she needed to go home, but Diana was always worried about her driving at night, so she told Nancy that she should just stay the night like she had many times before. But there was something in Nancy that just felt like she needed to go home. She couldn't explain it, but she needed to go home. To ease her mom's worries, Nancy showed Diana how to use FaceTime before she left so they could do it when Nancy got home. When Nancy did get home, she FaceTimed with her mom and said that she'd see her the next morning. Even though they didn't live together, Nancy always had off on Mondays, so the two would go grocery shopping together. Nancy told her mom to call her at 10 a.m. if she wasn't already at her apartment to pick her up. The next morning, Nancy woke up around 9 a.m. and saw that she had 38 missed calls from her cousin, David's sister Susie. 38 missed calls almost always means that something terrible happened, and Susie had a toddler, so Nancy called her cousin back immediately and asked what happened to the baby. Susie was hyperventilating, but managed to get out that it wasn't the baby. It was James, David, and Diana. She told Nancy that there had been a fire and everyone was accounted for except her mother. Earlier that morning, between 5 and 5.30 a.m., James woke up to the smell of smoke. And not like someone blew out a candle, it was an overwhelming smell. He ran to the window and saw a glow on the side of the building. The apartments were on fire, he was above it, and they needed to get out. He went into fight-or-flight mode and ran to the front door, which was at the front of the living room, and tried to wake up David, who was asleep on an air mattress. David slept with headphones in, so he didn't immediately wake up with all the commotion going on. James ran to the front door to see if he could get a better idea of how long they had to get out, but as soon as he opened the door, smoke filled the apartment and it was clear that there was no time left. He ran back over to David and kicked the air mattress so hard that David flew off of it onto the floor. Once he was awake, he realized what was going on and he too went into fight or flight mode. They thought they heard Diana yelling for them, asking where they were, so they figured she'd already gotten out and was yelling for them from outside. James couldn't remember a lot in that moment, but knew that if she had been in the bed when he woke up, he would have shaken her. And Diana's sister had called her at 5.30 a.m. to wake her up. Assuming Diana was already outside, they followed the barks of their dogs, Athena and Callie, but the barking stopped. They kept trying to look for them, but it came to a point where if they didn't get out of the apartment, they weren't going to make it. The two of them went to the bedroom window and David hung as low as he could by his hands and dropped to the ground. He sprained his ankle, but other than that, he seemed fine, at least for now. After David was out, James lowered himself as well, but he wasn't as lucky as David. When James hit the ground, he shattered his ankle and fractured his spine. He couldn't get up and bystanders had to drag him across the street to safety. He started screaming, asking where Diana was, but with everything going on, no one could give him an answer. (music) 
David's parents lived across the hall from where he, Diana, and James lived. So once he got out, he ran to the side of the building to see if they'd gotten out yet. He watched as his dad lowered his mom out of the window, but his dad had a bad elbow, which caused him to lose grip and she fell to the ground, breaking her leg. His father then jumped out of the window after her and onto the fence beside the building. The fence crumbled as he hit it. As soon as he knew his parents were safe, David's adrenaline dumped and the severity of his smoke inhalation sank in. EMS sedated him and intubated him on scene and put him into an ambulance to the hospital. We know firsthand what Nancy and her family went through, but they weren't the only ones heinously impacted by this fire. It was actually a man who lived across the street who noticed it first. According to Two News, a man named Raymond Hamilton noticed the fire around 5.30 that morning, and while his wife called 911, he ran over to see who he could help out. He had a hard time waking people up because it was so early, but he was able to help one man out of his apartment on the first floor. Like every other victim we've heard about, he too had to go out through his bedroom window. Raymond then saw a family on the top floor trying to lower their 12-year-old son out of the window, and Raymond was able to catch him as he fell. The 12-year-old boy was the son of a man named Michael who spoke to My News 4. He told the station that he woke up to everyone panicking. He opened his front door to see how much time they had, and just like with James, Diana's husband, as soon as he opened the door, the heat and smoke came billowing in. He knew that escaping down the stairs wasn't possible, so he broke his bedroom window and lowered his son down to Raymond, who caught him. After his son was out, he lowered his wife Kimberly down, and just like with Daniel's father, his grip slipped and as hard as Raymond tried to break her fall, Kimberly wound up breaking her leg in several places. With his son and wife out of the apartment, Michael then jumped out of his window to safety. All of that chaos and people having to fall and jump out of windows happened in the span of maybe 10 minutes. Fire, EMS, and police were on scene extremely fast, and that meant that news stations got there pretty quickly as well. They were filming from across the street, and you could watch as the fire burned through the roof on the second floor and blazed maybe 20 feet into the sky. KRNV actually has a couple of videos from when the fire was still raging, and in it, you can see people sitting and laying on the sidewalk and road, and some of those people were Nancy's family. Her father was filmed laying on his stomach in the road wearing only the underwear he woke up in because there was no time to get dressed. He couldn't sit on the sidewalk like everyone else because his back was literally broken. You can also see Nancy's aunt sitting on the sidewalk with a police officer bending over and talking to her. You can hear people yelling in the background and according to KRNV, they were yelling that their animals were still inside. Every single horrifying second of this was happening while Diana's daughter Nancy was asleep. She told me, I was asleep, my world was ending, and I had no idea. When her cousin Susie told her that there had been a fire, she called a friend to come get her because she was too hysterical to drive. When Nancy walked outside, her neighbor, who she was friends with, asked her what was going on, and Nancy told her that her mom's apartment had caught on fire. The neighbor already knew about it and asked her if it was the one on Broadway. It was already all over the news, and thousands of people had found out before Nancy ever had. She had to watch the news footage of her family on the road and sidewalk at the same time everyone else did, and her mother was nowhere to be found. 
With the news that everyone was accounted for except for her mother, Nancy, without even thinking about it, told her friend to drive to the apartments. She called hospitals on the way to see if her mom was at any of them, and when they kept telling her no, she asked if they had anyone with smoke inhalations or burns that were so bad that the patient couldn't talk. But still, they told her no. By the time Nancy got to the apartment building, the entire block was taped off and she didn't give a single fuck. She says that she doesn't recommend it, but she went through the tape. She found a cop and told him that she was looking for her mom, that her mom lived there, and she needed to find her. While she was telling him that, she overheard two detectives saying that they had found the bodies of two females, one upstairs and one downstairs. It was at that moment that Nancy knew her mom had died. There were only a few women who lived upstairs, one being her aunt and another woman whom Nancy was looking at sitting on the sidewalk. Her mom was the only one left. Nancy walked up to the detective to try and get more information, but he told her that he couldn't disclose anything because at that point, he didn't know who she was. He told her that she needed to contact the medical examiner. On top of everything she'd had to process that morning, she now had to call the medical examiner's office, and when she did, she couldn't get a hold of anyone. She called them several times trying to get in touch with anyone while she drove to the hospital her dad was at. She'd gotten a call from her cousin Susie saying that her dad was refusing the emergency surgery he needed until someone could tell him where his wife was. They'd actually asked him to sign an against medical advice form, and he compromised with them saying that he'd get the surgery if he could talk to his daughter first. Nancy rushed to the hospital and told him to get the surgery and that she'd figure everything out by the time he got out. With her dad in surgery and no word from the medical examiner, Nancy headed to the next hospital. They'd split up the survivors of the fire between two different hospitals, and David and his parents were at another one. Nancy was taken to the ICU waiting room, and before she was able to check on David, it was in that room that she looked at her phone and saw that the medical examiner was calling her back. She answered, and they asked her to describe her mom, and Nancy said that she was 5'9", with curly red hair and a tattoo of Nancy's birthday. They immediately confirmed that her mother had, in fact, died in the fire and her body was at the medical examiner's office. Nancy screamed, collapsing to the floor, and at some point, sound stopped coming out. She was still screaming, but there was nothing. Her mom, her best friend in the entire world, was gone, and she wasn't coming back. Life was a complete blur for Nancy for the next 20 minutes, but there were things she needed to do. She needed to check on David, and her dad was going to be getting out of surgery soon. She was relieved to see that after several hours, her cousin had been extubated and was breathing on his own, so she went back to the first hospital to wait for her dad to wake up. She knew that when he did, she'd have to tell him that the love of his life had died. Nancy says that when he woke up and Diana wasn't there, he knew. Without anyone saying anything, he knew. Nancy said that your body just knows, you can sense it, my mom's energy wasn't there anymore. Diana's body had been found right below the bedroom window. Though they initially thought she'd gotten out before them, it's now believed that Diana was in the bathroom getting ready when the fire started and that she too had been trying to find the dogs. Callie and Athena were found behind the couch and Callie had been covering Athena. In their final moments, Callie was trying to protect his sister. In total, 11 animals were killed in the fire on Boulevard, including a dog named Buck and another named Boots. 
The second victim of the fire was a 70-year-old woman named Catherine White. I couldn't find much information about Catherine, but according to Legacy.com, she lived an extremely full life with her husband, two sons, two daughters, and 18 grandchildren. According to Nancy, one of Catherine's grandsons was living with her at the time of the fire. Because of the pure chaos and terror that had unfolded in just hours, not a lot of people were thinking about what caused the fire. They were just worried about getting out of it. But there was someone who was focused on who caused it. A neighbor who didn't live in the building who happened to be a former volunteer firefighter. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, he saw a man running from the complex as it went up in flames, and he immediately started following him. Or should I say, them. The man running from the apartments hopped into a car, so the neighbor did as well and followed them as they drove erratically down the highway and watched as the man grabbed a gas container from the back seat and threw it out of the car. The volunteer firefighter called 911 and read them the license plate number and told them the direction they were headed in. Police caught up to the vehicle in no time and the car was pulled over about 14 miles from the site of the fire at the Gold Rush exit off I-80. A female was driving, but it was the male in the passenger seat who was arrested. He was a 31-year-old man named Brian Bandy. The following timeline comes from the Reno Gazette Journal. In the early morning hours of July 20th, 2020, the driver, we'll call her Maria, woke up with Brian putting her in a headlock. He told her that he needed to get gas for his lawnmower and made her take him to the gas station. Yes, he said he needed gas for his lawnmower in Nevada in the summer before the sun even came up. Maria said that she was afraid he would hurt her if she didn't comply, so she drove him to the gas station and she paid for the gas while he filled up the gas container outside. Once the gas was in the container, he gave her step-by-step -step directions on how to get to the apartment complex. She said he asked him what was going on and that he told her, the world is a mess, I need help. Once they were at the apartment complex, the timeline from the Reno Gazette Journal states that Brian grabbed the gas can and started walking towards the building. Five minutes later, Maria says that she saw black smoke overhead and Brian running back towards the car. It looks like it's at that moment that the volunteer firefighter saw him and knew that he needed to follow him. Though Maria didn't seem to know what happened in those five minutes, Diana's daughter Nancy now does. She says that Brian took the gas can and doused the walls and doors of the bottom floor with gasoline. He also poured it onto the concrete steps, and according to Nancy, he also took the two fire extinguishers, one downstairs and another from upstairs, and threw them away in the apartment garbage cans. With the first floor and the stairs on fire and no fire extinguishers to put it out, it was going to be next to impossible for anyone to escape unless they woke up on time and went out of their bedroom windows, which is what everyone tried to do. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, Maria said that Brian was acquainted with a woman who lived at the apartments and that she thinks Brian might have owed her $400. However, according to Nancy, when it came time for Brian's preliminary hearing, the woman he was acquainted with said that it was Brian who owed her money. 
Regardless of literally anything, none of it warranted devastating the lives of countless people, the death of two wildly adored women, and 11 animals. When Brian got back to the car, the Reno Gazette Journal reports that he pointed a six to seven inch knife at Maria's rib cage and told her to keep driving. She drove until they were ultimately pulled over thanks to the help of that volunteer firefighter. If it wasn't for him, Nancy isn't sure that they'd ever have gotten justice for her mom or for Catherine. A month after Brian's arrest, a preliminary hearing was held and a lot came to light. But the most horrific moment was when David had to identify Diana's burned body through a photo displayed to him. He identified her while Diana's daughter Nancy watched via YouTube because COVID had left the courts with such strict regulations. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, Brian was facing two counts of murder, one count of arson, and one count of imprisonment with the use of a deadly weapon. But in January of this year, 2022, Brian took a plea. He pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, and the arson and false imprisonment charges were dropped. He was scheduled to be sentenced in April, but there have been numerous extensions, and Nancy says that they're still waiting to find out just how long he's going to be in prison. When it comes to how she felt about him being offered a deal, Nancy said that she was kind of glad that the photos of her mother after the fire would have been ingrained in their brains forever, and the impact it had on David is irreversible. She said that a lot of people assumed right off the bat that she wanted Brian to get the death penalty, but in Nancy's exact words, she said, no, that's the easy way out. Then he'd be free. I want him to be 99 in that cell and miserable. I want him to spend the life he took away from my mother rotting in that cell. There is another hearing to set a date for Brian's sentencing scheduled for October, but even then, it's just a date to set a date. As his case progresses through the courts and Brian has handed down his sentence, I will be sure to update you. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Diana's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case on Monday, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 